Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. Good morning. It's good morning. Good to be here. Let's open up our Bibles to our text for today, which is going to be uh, Titus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. If you've got your journals, use those. Titus 2. There's a blue pew Bible if you need that as well. You can open that up. Let me read the text for this morning. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, and the word of God that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before I begin. Heavenly Father, would you give grace for me as I unpack this passage? Would you give grace to us all as we hear this word, Father, would it impact us? Would it change us? Would it help us? Father, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive what you have for us this morning in this service through your word in Titus 2. So be with us now as we do these things together in your son's name. Amen. Churches that bless the nation teach what accords with sound doctrine which means it practices personal discipleship that flows from sound doctrine, leading to Godward-oriented hearts and holy living. Now, I love Lego, and I have a couple Legos with me, as of course I do. And just listen, just if you get this. Just... Oh, yeah. I love, I love that snap. and I love the snap of Legos. And... I love the fit. I love the way they fit together, just seamlessly, just tight. I love that little snap and that fittedness. And that's what we're talking about, that sound doctrine and that which accords with sound doctrine fits like that, just seamless and tight, that satisfying snap as these two things go together. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, much ink has been spilled in the commentaries focusing on what the various behavioral commendations mean in this text. And I think they are not a list for us, but constellations of godly, holy character. They are not exactly the same, but they are related to one another. Nevertheless, my goal is to step back and take a look at the main point of Paul's command to Titus. 
and the church so that we can see the broader picture being painted for us that churches that bless the nations teach what accords with sound doctrine through personal discipleship that leads to practical holiness and addresses the heart primarily and then behavior as fruit and not root of righteousness. So that's where we're going today. And Titus 2.1 is just packed. So let's begin. Let's begin by defining the words themselves. First, we see this massive contrast between chapter 1 and the false teachers and Titus and the church. We see this in this emphasized contrast, but you, but you, that emphasis on you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then we look at the word teach, right? And teach means to proclaim and speak, but also in our text, it is designed to include encouraging, as we see in verse 6, or setting an example, which is in verse 7. It is no less than speaking, but it is not only speaking. Teaching takes on various forms, encouraging, exhorting, urging, modeling by example. Doctrine alone is not to preoccupy Titus, but also this kind of living. And we see that he is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And accords with means to agree with, to be consistent with, to fit with, like Legos snapping together. They fit. It is fitting. Our belief and behavior must match. Our heart's character must match our outward obedience. They both must snap together like these Lego pieces. If our works do not accord with sound doctrine, then people may speak contemptuously or revile sound doctrine, as we see in verse 5. So sound doctrine, as we see from the beginning, is a contrast from what we see in Titus 1, 14 through 16. That sound doctrine itself is the true gospel and all its accompanying truth. So we have the true gospel. There are major implications that I want us to see before we continue on. Paul's explicit command to teach what accords with sound doctrine implies that sound doctrine is not always accompanied by the holiness which accords with it, which is why the church must teach or cultivate it and be on the lookout for it and when and where it's missing. The pursuit of sound doctrine without teaching the holiness that accords with it creates this imbalance that indicates a lack of maturity. I think of 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, knowledge can puff up while love builds up. So sound doctrine leading us astray can puff us up in pride rather than building one another up in love. This lack of maturity, this imbalance, is a dangerous hypocrisy that leads to abuses. We see this all over in politicians and, unfortunately, the pulpit. As we are lulled and lured by sound words that assume holy living rather than see it. We are called to watch on ourselves and our teachings. So holiness is both a test for sound doctrine in chapter 1, but it is also a, a test for character that lags behind or contradicts sound doctrine in chapter 2. When we put holiness before sound doctrine, we create legalism. When holiness flows from righteousness received by faith in Christ according to the sound doctrine, it glorifies God and adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. So holiness adorns the gospel. I'm getting that all the way from 
verse 10, so I'm borrowing a little bit from our future text, but because it's all related together, we can't help ourselves. So this is important. If our behaviors do not flow from our hearts, from our hearts that are worshiping, treasuring, and acting out of a love for something or someone other than God, it's dangerous. We must heed the warning of Psalm 135, 15-18, which was read for us this morning already by Sean. Idols are made of silver and gold. They have mouths that do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And those who worship them become like them. If we worship the true God, we will become like him in holiness. And if we worship other gods, something or someone other than him, then we will become like them. We will become mute and deaf, and we will have no life in us. So we heed that warning, and therefore I just want to disagree a bit with Mark Dever over his idea that expository preaching is the most important mark of the healthy church. Rather, all marks of the healthy church are equally essential to one another because they flow from and toward each other. They're interrelated. Imagine a church with expository preaching that does not pray, or a church that prays but has no character and ungodly leadership. Churches that bless the nations teach what accord with sound doctrine through personal discipleship that leads to practical holiness. We see this now in verses 2 through 6. Paul urges personal discipleship through the fitting semantic chiasm that he uses, as the New American Commentary puts it, right? We have this A-B-B-A pattern, and we have the use of the word likewise. So we have Titus is to instruct older men and older women. Older women are to instruct younger women. Titus is to instruct younger men. And Titus not only speaks, but models good works. So this likewise and this Chiasm signify that all the characteristics seen here applies to everyone, worked out in personal relationships across age, gender, and even status later on in the text. Holiness transcends status. No one is insignificant. The substance and method is linked throughout with this word, likewise. We see that personal discipleship flows from sound doctrine, right? Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And we see that... This personal discipleship means experiential, intimate relationships that are the best way to identify character which reveals our hearts. A Christian's faith is lived out both objectively through knowing sound doctrine, the truth about who God is and what he has done through Christ, and subjectively as experience of sound doctrine in our hearts works its way out in outward behavior. Personal discipleship leads to practical holiness in the following ways. It isn't limited to the what of sound doctrine, but includes the how and the why, as we see in verses 2 through 6 and beyond. It speaks and models holiness. We cannot teach what we do not ourselves live and know. So if Paul is saying we're to teach younger men and younger women these things, then older men and older women must embody them. We cannot teach what we do not live and know. See how what is taught is first prescribed to those who teach. 
Now here I want to say a few things about this broader sense of discipleship. Age distinction here, I think, is both life experience and spiritual maturity. Right? The reason why older men and older women are called to teach is because they've lived a little more of life, they've been a little bit further along the path than the younger, and so they have this experience to live out. But without the personal holiness that Paul is commanding, they are not fit to teach, despite their experience. So we, we are called both to have experience and personal holiness out of which we can teach the next generation. And, and I think Paul here might mean even that um, you know, older men and older women, might, they might be beyond their They might have already experienced their family, and now they're teaching this generation who have families to raise. But in reality, if you are older, you can teach someone who's younger. And if you are younger, you can learn from someone who's older. I don't think it's a strict line. So, uh, and I think gender distinctions here are practical and not prescriptive. And I mean that because what, what we have elders in the church which are holding fast to sound doctrine and teaching sound doctrine. But the issue of holiness, we all teach each other. We all model for each other. We all learn from each other. Now, there are some practical things. I don't presume to teach Yoki how to be a good mother. I've never been one. I don't know how to do it. There should be some older women who come beside her and, and the other expecting mothers of this church to help them apply that which is good, what is morally good, to the particulars of their lives. And yet, in the broad sense, we can all model and teach holiness to one another. Sober-mindedness relates to not being slaves to much wine, right? We see this symmetry. It only mentions wine in... Uh, in the text once. But this sober-mindedness is a theme that follows and likewise carries it through. So these things apply across the board to all of us. And it could be that, that drunkenness was a major problem in Crete, and that's why Paul addresses it specifically. But that's a particular practical application. But it applies to all areas of life. So we look toward the heart and not merely behaviors. Right? We're not saying that, well, Paul addresses drunkenness, so that's, that's the import of the text. No, we all have excesses. There are ways in which we all um, can worship idols and give our control over to a, a substance or a person that we ought not to, rather than the Holy Spirit. So, as we look to the heart, this is perhaps the hardest piece for us. Because in, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance, referring to David, or on the height of the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. I'm talking about his brothers, I'm sorry. Uh, or Saul. Man, if I could just get my people straight. So the Lord said to Samuel, referring to Saul, do not look on his appearance or on his height and stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we are deeply concerned about the heart. And this is hard for us. We need to train ourselves to see the heart and not just focus on outward behavior. This is because this is where true character is found in the heart. Nice is not a virtue. I can be nice to get what I want, but that's not a virtue. We are often groomed by wolves disguised as sheep. They behave well, they lure and lull us in, but they have no character or no good character. 
Behavior change without heart change does not adorn God's doctrines because he values a contrite heart over sacrifice. In verse 2, uh, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, the ESV translates this reverent in behavior, where behavior has a flavor of behavior in demeanor. In other words, as one of our commentary puts it, it's an outward expression of an inner character. That's what we're talking about in obedience, an outward expression of an inner character. We see character appealed to in the motives we are given in Titus. Now here I have to borrow from some upcoming sermons again. Andreas Kostenberger notes that these, these motivations, which we see in verses 12 and then broader in 11 through 14, we have the grace of God which appeared in Christ. The grace of God which appeared in Christ, which also instructs us. The grace of God saves us, and it instructs us. It saves us, and it sanctifies us, and it motivates us towards holiness. And we have the return of Christ himself as a motive for pursuing holiness. These motives appeal to our hearts. Our hearts are the very root of our desires, which influence or are influenced by our thinking our minds, our feelings and emotions, and our will and actions which are embodied in our brains and the rest of our bodies, but they flow from our hearts. When we address someone's holiness, we must begin by observing behavior, but we cannot rest there. We cannot stop with outward behavior. We continue to go deeper in our observations, conversations, questions, and care to look at the thoughts, feelings, and desires that are motivating such words and actions in others. We see this also back in chapter 1, where Paul criticizes the false teachers, teaching uh, but addressing their hearts through their devotions, beliefs, minds, consciences, which are all matters of the heart. He's not just addressing outward behavior. Holiness is not holiness unless rooted in a love for God first and a love for others flowing from it. We see this in 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So we see the importance of the heart as it regards to holiness. Churches that bless the nations teach what accords with sound doctrine through personal discipleship that leads to practical holiness, that addresses the heart primarily, and then behavior as fruit and not the root of righteousness. So let's get down to the nub of this matter. How do we do such things? How do we do them? And I want to spend the rest of my sermon focusing on the how that we do. First, we are present. I cannot simply throw flour and water and yeast and salt into a bowl and say, become bread. It doesn't work that way. It takes sinking my hands into the ingredients, kneading it, patiently proving the dough in a conducive environment, and then waiting for the oven to do its baking work. I must be present, or those ingredients will never become a loaf of bread. We show up. We personally invest ourselves sacrificially in each other's lives at great cost and burden to our time, 
comforts, conveniences, and wants. I know this is costly, what I'm asking. I know it's costly what Paul is preaching. That's why it must be preached. That's why it must be taught. It is costly. These are not easy things. We are not consumers shopping for convenience, but priests to our God, participating personally for our good and for the good of others as we bring each other lovingly into God's presence by our increasingly godly presence and prayer in order to be transformed. We are present with others in order to personally both give and receive instruction in holiness. Do we feel the import of this? Do we feel it's, the weight of it? Do we look to share what we have learned, especially with those across other demographics? Well, here's some ways we can be present. Join us personally on Sunday morning. Come here and rub elbows with, with everyone else who's here, encouraging, urging, praising the Lord together. Join a life group and attend faithfully, not perfectly, not not perfectly, but faithfully, because at life groups we pursue intergenerational memberships in our, in our groups. We, we seek to have a, a broad representation of ages and genders and stations in life. The church is often the only place in our society anymore where we can mingle and mix with people who are not like us. Most of the world tends to be pretty, pretty much just the same. We, we, we interact with the same. But here, we want to interact with those who are different across all demographics. We will, hear, uh, we, will, we will hear stories. We will pray for each other. We will have scripture discussions. I want to visit the different life groups in this upcoming iteration and to get at conversations, cardiac conversations. How do we do this? How do we have conversations that get at, understand, and address the heart and not merely outward obedience? I myself, um, I struggle with customer service. What does that mean? When I'm interacting with someone in the, in the, in the medium of commerce, I reduce the relationship to I am buying and you are providing. And I tend to forget that we are all created in the image of God, that I relate to them first and foremost as a priest to our God, as someone who is created in the image of God, adopted into the family by Jesus, speaking to someone else who's created in the image of God, whether or not they've been called yet by Christ or not. And I forget that that is the most important relationship I have with that person. And I get demanding because I'm paying for something after all and you're supposed to provide it. So get to it. Don't dissatisfy me. I'm a paying customer. But do you see how that completely ignores the basis of our relationship before the face of the living God? I need help with that. I need your help with that. And you need my help with some things too. And you need each other's help. We all struggle in holiness. And our hearts are darkened by our desires. So these things are important, right? And we, we, we need to learn how to have conversations that get to and address such matters. 
the Lego pieces are not fitting properly in those conversations with me. They are not snapping together. So, another way, we can come to a worship service on a Sunday. We can come and join a life group. We can also come to prayer service tonight for stories of God at work and to pray for our church to be one that would bless the nations. We are a people who are present for each other. We extend hospitality in our homes to each other. You want to know how to have an intergenerational ministry? There are college students lined up right here. Invite some of them over to your home. They like a home-cooked meal. They might even need some, some laundry done. Do you, have a, do you have a washer? Do you have a dryer? Well, just invite them over. Tell them to bring their laundry. You can serve and you can have conversations. Who, who would turn down such an offer like that? <laughs> I didn't. And you shouldn't either. Take, up, take people up on those offers and let's make those offers. Right? Let's, let's adopt a college student. Let's invite neighbors over to our houses. But we even go deeper than that. We go deeper. You know, if Nike's slogan, just do it, seems silly and inadequate, it's because it is. Am I really expected to believe that I can run a race successfully if I just have the swoosh on my shoes and on my apparel? No. It takes training. It takes work. It takes both body and soul to be conditioned to run such a race. And if those things exist, then yeah, the right shoes and the right apparel help, but they don't get me across the finish line. So there is the same problem with our skin-deep instruction aimed at bad behavior that says, just stop it. With the right doctrine, insight, and command, we can just stop it, can't we? Well, no, because we ignore that our heart's desire is to have what we want or to not lose what we have or to not receive what we dislike. And those are the things that drive us. And just do it or just stop it do not help us. They don't help you if I were to say such things to you. So why would we say such things to each other? So we look beyond mere behavior to our deep heart-held motivations and idols where only the grace of God and hope in Christ can reform us and transform us. That's what we're doing. That's what we're called to do here. Now, we expand the categories that Paul gives us in verse 2 through 6. I hinted at this a little bit before, but we expand these categories. Self-control and reverence dominate this list if you look at verses 2 through 6. But what fits in here? What fits into self-control? What fits into reverence? Is it just how much we drink or don't drink? Or whether we get drunk? No. Anger, immortality. Immorality, immaturity, substance abuse, gossip, crudeness, dishonesty, hatred, indifference of others. These all fit. These all fit. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not limitly applied to, to some particular area of life, but to all areas of life. And we are called to be reverent. There are no respectable sins or indifferent hearts. So... Paul's categories can be expanded. We will find ourselves somewhere in Paul's categories of the call to self-control and reverence. Sin is like a ticking bomb or leaky nuclear waste drums. Exploding bombs do massive noticeable damage. It is our sinful behavior unchecked. But the volatile bomb itself is our hearts making our mere presence dangerous. 
I mean, if there's a bomb to be disarmed, they clear the area, right? They don't leave anybody in there in case it goes off because bombs are massively destructive. And so can our sin be out of our hearts. But our hearts can also be like leaky nuclear waste drums that are silently toxic, unseen but slowly destructive by its constant presence. The leaking is our respectfully sinful behavior, but the radioactivity is our toxically sinful hearts, destructive by mere exposure. So we dare not leave them be. We must address our hearts. We live before the face of God in the fear of the Lord. That's where we live. It defines our relationships. This is not just the person who's selling me something or serving my needs in a, in a monetary transaction. It's not just somebody who's called to change my tires and get me ready for winter. It's not just somebody who I'm calling on the phone so that they can fix my accounts or do some sort of transaction. These are people who are made in the image of God. And I am called as a priest of God to minister the grace of God and the hope and the return of Jesus Christ to them. So before we act or speak or move toward others, we reorient our hearts to the reality of who God is and what he has done on the cross. And in our lives today, this week, and what is true for you and his purposes for and through you toward others. That's what we do. How do we do that? Well, we don't expect or even think that it's healthy to pursue a perfect church. Because I think perfectionism is the enemy of the good. The energy it takes to get the last 1% to perfection costs us so much opportunity where we need to grow massively. We are sinners, and we will sin against each other. So we continually confess sin, as we did this morning, and then we forgive and restore fellowship. And that can take time. But if you go online, there are, you can find the seven A's of confession, these seven principles that make a good confession that can elicit from another person the four promises of forgiveness, which can also be found. I don't have time to unpack those right here. But we confess our sin to each other, and we forgive and restore relationships because that is how the grace of God flows. And in all these arenas... We have personal conversations. Intentional, intentional conversations, though they might be incidental. You might run into someone today you didn't expect, but we still have an intentional conversation with them. Not, not necessarily uh, planned, but focused. And we have both casual and concerted conversations, right? Some, some conversations are off the cuff. Some are planned for and are aimed specifically at the heart, like a conversation we might have in a life group. In the foyer, oh yes, the foyer, oh yes. I've been in Canada now for nine months, and I know we enter into the foyer. Woe to those who think otherwise. (laughs) So in the foyer or in the pew... Or wherever, or wherever we meet people, that's where we have such conversations. We ask questions that seek to know, and we listen. We listen in order to know. We listen in order to understand. People are not problems to be fixed, but persons to be loved. So, 
We disciple each other when we speak and model holiness in the mundane activities of life. We serve together in worship. We serve in the kitchen. We serve in the nurseries. We serve in HBC Kids. And when you raise your kids, we give them Jesus. Do we teach our kids to simply obey the rules to be right or to love Jesus and reflect him as we reflect him to them? How do we live and teach at work, church, home, or even shopping? How are we modeling holiness, that which accords with sound doctrine? And we pray for each other. The grace of God empowers us at the heart level. We point to Jesus. We point each other to Jesus. And we remind and restore hope in Christ's return. That's what we're doing. Churches that bless the nations teach what accords with sound doctrine. By pointing to Jesus with genuine faith in the triune God and his gospel, depending on his grace for us to live holy lives, using personal discipleship in formal and casual relationships, speaking, modeling, inquiring, understanding rightly both God and the person in front of us, understanding rightly God's doctrine, his ways, and the heart of the people we meet, fueled by prayer, motivated by God's gracious power and presence, both now and eagerly expecting Christ's return. That's how the church that blesses the nation teaches what accords with sound doctrine. And we want to be such a church. Let me close this in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, these are These are weighty instructions. What we are being called to do is beyond us. We need your grace in our lives, transforming us. We need to keep our eyes on you. We dare not neglect the graces that we have before us, reminding, even now as we are going to take communion, reminding us of the blood and sacrifice of Christ so that we might be made new. And in being made new, we can help others be made new. And others can help us because your grace is powerful. So we need your grace. We need to trust in your grace. We need to look forward to your return, which gives us hope to live pure and holy lives in a dark, dark and lost age. Father, your, your body And your blood, the cup, and the bread will help remind us of such things. But we need to commune with you personally, over your word, in prayer, with each other. Father, so that we might grow up into maturity, to be healthy. So that when we sin against one another, we can confess quickly and forgive completely. Father, that's our hope. As you have done for us, that is what we want to do for each other. So Father, do that work among us for us individually and corporately as we live life together. In your son's name, amen.